Hey, I want to ask you a question to start. Has there ever been a time in your life where you wanted something so bad that you would do practically anything to get it? There was that thing that you just had to have. You saw it, you fell in love with it, and you knew it had to be yours, and you would do anything to get it. I think all of us can probably think to something, right? There was that, that, that time in our life where we went maybe overboard a little bit because we wanted something so badly. A few years ago, Courtney and I uh, were, were traveling up to see family in Nebraska, and Courtney's cousin, Ryan, great guy, runs a, a car dealership in Nebraska. And so we always joked, we should go by and see what he's got. And so we, we pull into the lot, and we, we kind of drive around a little bit, and, and there's this, this car that just catches my eye. It was, this is a few years ago, keep in mind, it was a 2007 Chevy Trailblazer. Now, this thing was amazing, right? It had that supple black leather interior. It had the Bose premium, surround, or premium sound system. I mean, it was so good. And so I fell in love with this car, and, and I knew immediately I had to have it. Like this, I had to have this car. The problem was, Courtney had the flu. Not really a good combination to go car buying. And so I take her over to her parents' house, and I just say, hey, you know what? I'm going to go just check out that car. So I drive over, and I, Ryan tosses me the keys. I take it for a test drive. And I'm out cruising around. I'm jamming the stereo, and I'm like, this is it. Like, this is the one. I just know it. So I drive back to, court, to the house where Courtney's at. I'm like, hey, so I got something I want to show you. Come on outside. So I bring her in. She's like, oh, this is pretty. You could tell she just felt terrible. Got in the car, took a little tour. She's like, I like it. You know, but can I please go home so I can sleep for the next 24 hours, right? It was just not good. And so I, of course, of course. And so I take her home, take the car back. I go back the next day to test drive it again. And I'm thinking to myself, how do I get this car? Now, as any loving husband whose wife is sick at home with the flu would do, I asked her to come with me to the car dealership and spend four hours filling out paperwork and talked her into buying this trailblazer. And there was, at that moment, no shame at all. I just had to have it. Problem was, I bought this car, drove it home, and Courtney got sick in the car on the way home. And I still hear about that one today. So note to self, fellas, if your wife's got the flu, don't force her to buy a car, right? It's just the way it works. But I think we've all been there, right? There's something that you know you want so badly that you can't stop thinking about it. And all you want to do is find a way to get that thing in your life. And a lot of times these are good things. A lot of times it can be things that are positive, like promotions at work or that new house. Or that relationship, that, that, that person you want to date. And you know that's the right one. But th- the problem we have is not the, necessarily the thing, although, although buying a car can sometimes get you in trouble. The, the problem is how we go about it. Because in life, what happens when we want something so badly, we have a habit of running people over to get it. And we have a habit of manipulating people to get what we want. And we have a habit of getting into fights and arguments and hurting other people. See, the Bible tells us that, that we have a capacity to go too far when there are things that we want and the things that we desire in our heart, that we have the ability to go too far. And what happens is, is it, it's, it's a, a symbol that we have a misalignment going on inside of us. You know, think about if your car has ever been misaligned. You hit a curb, you, you, you did something to, to, to knock it out of alignment, and you start to notice it because you're driving down the road, and what does it start to do? Starts to pull, doesn't it? Starts to drift off the road. Your tires start to wear a little unevenly. Now, you have an option when you notice this. You, and you may not notice it a whole lot on the city streets, 
But you get on a highway and you really start to feel it. The faster you go, the higher speed you go, the more you notice it. And so you have an option. You could take it into the deal, spend a couple hundred bucks and have them fix the alignment. Or you just deal with it. Which is not a big deal driving to work. But on that long trip to Moab, it becomes a big deal. It becomes more expensive the more you have to replace tires. It gets you tired when you're fighting the wind and you're fighting to stay in the right lane the entire time. Misalignment causes problems down the road that we could deal with today. And I think the same thing happens to us in our lives. That we see the way that we interact with people in our relationships. We see the things that we want so badly spill over into causing negative tension between our, our, our friends and our family and our spouse and our coworkers. And that's a symbol. That's, a, that's an indication that there's something going on in here. That there's a, something that's been misaligned. In the book of James, especially in James chapter 4, James really gets to this topic. And he tells us that we need to get real with looking under the hood. We need to get real with recognizing what is going on. What, what, are our, what, are, what is coming out of us that's symbolizing what's going on in the inside? And, and let, me, let me share with you why I think this is really important. Because as your pastor, I have this deep conviction that in life that there is a richness and a fullness and a deepness that, that is possible for us. But we can only experience that richness and that deepness and that fullness if we follow God's way. And that God created the world to work in a certain way. And that when we follow God's plan, we can experience it to the fullness. The problem we have, though, is that we typically want to follow our own path, and it leads us in the wrong direction. And we have to, to, to keep a close look at what's going on in, in our lives to see what's going on deep and in, in inside of us. And this is what James is going to talk about today in James chapter 4. So if you have your Bibles, let's look at James chapter 4. And we're going to see how James tells us that we can look at the outside and see what's going on deep inside. Look with me. James chapter 4 will be verses 1 through 10 this morning. Here's what James says. James says, What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You, you desire and you do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and you do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. Notice what James says. This is a hard, it's pretty, pretty strong language. He says, you adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you suppose it is to no purpose that the scripture says that he, God, yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us? But he gives us more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud and gives grace to the humble. Verse 7, submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourself before the Lord and he will exalt you. Forefront, this is the word of the Lord. You know, these words are pretty strong. And we've talked over and over in this series in James about how James is, is trying to step on our toes and try to press in on us to tell us to get real with our faith. And the way that we tell is to get the way we know and how real to get is by seeing what comes out. That we might feel that we have something stirring up inside of us, that something's going on inside of us, that our faith is, is alive and well. But if we look at our lives and we see nothing but mess, 
then that's an indication that the faith we claim is genuine may not be. And so James is continually stepping on our toes saying, pay attention, look under the hood, see what's going on in your life. And this is exactly what James is talking about here. He's, he's telling us to, to look specifically at the very beginning of chapter 4 at our relationships and ask, what's going on? What, what do we see? Because typically when we look at our relationships, we can learn a lot about our lives. Because what happens for many of us is relationships tend to drift in one of two ways. And it all really is determined by what is going on in here. You know, one way that I think typically we see this happen is that you're the kind of person that looks at what you have in life and everything that's come your way as a gift from God. You know, James says in in chapter 1 that every gift comes from God. Every gift comes down from the Father of lights. So every good thing in your life comes from God. And so do you look at your life and see that every gift, every good thing you have, your health, or money in the bank, or friendships, or good relationships, or a good job, do you see those things as gifts from God? Because typically if you do see those things as gifts from God, what it does is it leads you to gratitude. And when you have gratitude in your heart for the graciousness of God, as Matt Chandler tells it, it it leads to gladness. And gladness leads to more gratitude, which leads to more gladness. And what happens when you have gladness in your heart is it spills over into the way you treat other people. And it means that when somebody else has something I want, I can be happy for them. When somebody else has something good happening in their life, I can rejoice with them. I don't have to be jealous. And I don't have to be envious. I can genuinely celebrate the wins of other people. So that's one path. Is that your path? Because there's another. And this path is heavily traveled. But the other path looks at the things of life and sees them as something that should be given. That we deserve certain things in life. And so if we look at somebody else who has something that we want, rather than being glad for them, it leads us to wanting and being jealous and being envious. And rather than having gladness from gratitude of what God has given us, it leads us to contempt. Contempt to somebody else because they've got more than us. Which, by the way, somebody always has more. Contempt at God because God has not given us what we think we deserve. And so what is so important about what James is telling us is that we can see so much about ourselves and what's going on in here under the hood by our relationships around us. This is what James is talking about here in chapter 4, verse 1. Look back. Notice what he says. He, He points us to this, and he says, what is causing these quarrels? What is causing these arguments? What is causing these fights in your life? Why are you bickering? Why are you having problems in your relationships? He says what's causing these is that there is a war going inside of you. There is a war of passion, your passions, fighting inside of you. Now, I think a reality of life, you guys will probably all admit, right, that conflict happens. Conflict is going to happen. It's a reality. But James is talking about the conflict that comes from misalignment. Right? This is the conflict that comes from having a misaligned heart. And he's saying that there is this war that is going on inside of us now. He's not... He's not talking about, he talks about our passions. He's not talking about the things that you enjoy doing. Like somebody might say, hey, what are you passionate about? And you might say, well, I just, I love my kids. Or I love Van Gogh art, right? Or I'm passionate about that 1965 Shelby GT350, right? I'm super passionate about that. But that's not what James is talking about. For pa- that word passions is where we get the word hedonism from. So he's talking about our desires, and it's selfish desires. It's sinful desires. It's the, self, um, the self-indulgent things we want in life. 
And so James is saying the reason you are fighting with somebody else is because you have a war going on inside of you, and it's because of the selfish desires inside of your heart. And so this is really, I think James is going to give us these, these kind of roadmaps to see in our life what's going on deep inside. And this is the first one he gives us. He says that a misguided heart is marked by selfishness. That if you look at your life and you look at the way you live and you look at the, the relationships in your life, if you see selfishness, then it's showing you that you have a misaligned heart. That you've got, you've ran into a curb at some point and you need to get the car in the shop. Because if you don't, it's going to continue to lead to problems over and over again. It's a great quote by Paul David Tripp. Notice what he says. He says this. He says, the DNA of sin is selfishness. Sin inserts me into the middle of my universe, the one place reserved for God and God alone. Sin reduces my field of concern down to my wants, my needs, and my feelings. Paul Tripp says that sin really does make it all about me. And that is going to be different for all of us. Right? Your selfishness will play it out differently than mine will. See, for me, it may be stuff. It may be cars. For you, it might be applause. Or it might be recognition. Or it might be a relationship. Or it might be a desire for community. But however it plays out, it might not be a bad thing. But the problem is, again, how we react to it. And how it works itself out in our lives. And it leads us to a place, James says, we don't want to go because it leads us to a place where life gets ugly. Notice what James says in verse 2. He says that you desire and do not have, right? So you want this thing, somebody else has it, and so now you're lashing out to them. You're angry, you're mad, you're fighting. What is the result, he says? So you what? Murder. Ah, oh, come on, James. Like, that's pretty strong, right? Murder? Now, now thankfully, we don't know. We don't have commentaries that tell us that there was murders in the first century church like James is talking about here. We, a lot of scholars think that James is talking about their, uh, the hard attitude behind it of anger. You know, remember, James is Jesus' half-brother. And so James echoes his brother's words. If you guys think back to the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus continually talked about the kingdom of God. And in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus continually took what was viewed as a standard in culture and raised it to God's standard. He continued to elevate the heart behind it. And remember what he said about anger. He said in Matthew chapter 5, verse 21, that you've heard it said that to those of old that you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council, and whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. James is echoing Jesus here and saying, look, when you have anger in your heart to some, towards your brother, towards your sister, towards somebody else, it's a demonstration of something that's going on and something that's broken and wrong inside of you. And so you have to notice it and you have to address it because while us fighting about something isn't necessarily going to lead us to murder, it's not that far of a stretch to see us hurt people and run people over because we don't get what we want. Notice Genesis chapter 4, Cain and Abel. So it's not outside of the realm of possibility of what James is talking about here. So he's saying pay attention to what is going on underneath the hood. And really what I think James wants to get us, wants to slap us around with a little bit, is to see that sin is always waging a war inside of us. You know, I think a lot of us, 
when we become Christians, we, um, we, we think really back to our, our, our old life and, and the sins that we used to battle with, and we realize that they, they kind of still linger and, and all of these things. And we, we, we read Bible verses like Romans. Romans is full of verses that say, hey, sin ha- no longer has control over us, right? We no longer are enslaved to sin. But there is still a reality that sin still spins through our veins, that we are born broken into a broken world, and sin will always still be a reality that we have to deal with. This is what James is trying to get us to see, that we're always going to fight sin, that we are born with a sin nature, and that there will always be a battle within. Paul puts it this way in Ephesians chapter 2. He says, before you became a Christian, before you put your faith in Jesus, you were dead in your trespasses and sins. He says, among whom we all lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Paul says, before you put your faith in Jesus, sin had control of you. But now, notice what he says in in verse 4, but God, but God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ By grace, you have been saved. Paul says that that sin had us around the neck before we put our faith in Jesus. But God has given us the gift of faith and salvation. And we we have been freed from sin having dominion over our life. But that doesn't mean that we won't fight sin still. The reality is that sin is still ever-present, and if we don't stand up against it and fight against it, it's still going to be in our lives, and we're still going to struggle with it. And this is what Paul says in Galatians chapter 5. Notice what he says. He says this, But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. Do you see what Paul's saying there? That there's this battle within. That sin is raging a war within inside of you. And you've got your desires that sin wants. And then you have the spirit of God inside of you that's telling you what God wants. And they're at, at odds with each other. And we need to pay attention to that. Because if we don't, it'll lead us down the wrong path and lead us to be misaligned. And we see this play out because of selfishness and the selfish desires in our life. But it's not just that. Notice also what also James says. James says in verse 2 that a misaligned heart is also marked by misaligned prayers. Like if you want to know what's going on under the hood, another way you look and see is not just your, your relationships with other people, it's your prayers. So ask yourself, when you, if you looked at your prayers, if you laid your prayers out on the table and looked at what you prayed for this week, what would it reveal? What would it show you? Are you praying for the things that God would want you to pray for? Or are you praying at all? Look back at what he says in verse 2. James says, you do not have because you do not ask. That, the, that you're losing the battle inside and you're not even praying anymore. You know, Wayne Gretzky and Michael Scott both say that you miss 100% of the shots you don't take. And James is saying that you miss 100% of God's answered prayers that you don't ask for. And maybe even a bigger issue than unanswered prayers is unasked prayers. So what are you praying for? Now, you might hear that and say, well, hold on, hold on, wait a second. Doesn't the Bible tell us that God knows what we need before we even ask for it? Like, doesn't the Bible talk about that God knows what we need? So do we really need to pray? Like, do we really need to ask for what we need? 
And I hear what you're saying, but there's a, there is this concept, this theme that runs throughout the Bible that God loves to move through the prayers of his people. That yes, God knows what you need, but God, as your heavenly father, wants you to ask for it. Now, God will provide, no doubt, but God wants you to ask for the things that you need. God loves to work in response to our asks. And when we, our hearts get misaligned, we just stop asking. We just stop going to God, and we get pulled away and drifted into this thing that we think we really want or we think we need. Or, as James says next, we pray for the wrong things. Look at what he says in verse 3. He says that you ask and you don't receive because you ask wrongly, because you want to spend it on your passions. So again, what are your prayers like? like what do you see when, when you pray? There's nothing wrong with asking God for the things that you want. But if God's not answering those things, then could it be that you're asking him for something that's not what he wants for you? Could it be that you're asking him for that job or that promotion or that house or whatever it could be or that relationship and God's saying, that's not right for you. I need you to wait. It's not right. So he's just trying to, again, to get us to see, are our hearts misaligned and how do we tell? Well, it, it, are we in selfish fights with other people and are our prayers a mess? And James is getting us to this place where he's going to tell us that actually a misaligned heart will show you that you're actually cheating on God. He says this. He says a misaligned heart is marked by a friendship with the world. Look at verse 4. James gets really, really kind of uh, forthright here and steps on our toes in talking about this misaligned friendship with the world. Look what he says in verse 4. He says, you adulterous people. Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Now, that's hard language. Like, an enemy of God. Like, God, I, you know, I'm following you. Jesus, I, I have a relationship with you. God, I put my faith in you. And God is saying, but if you have drifted to the point where you've been so misaligned by your desires and your selfishness and your, your, your self-indulgence that you have drifted away from me, then right now you are standing in hostility to me. So get real and pay attention. When he, James talks about this world, the world, he's talking about the, the world, the, the, the big picture of the world as in the world being this spiritual system made up of values and morals that are anti-God. And he's saying that when you become friends with that, then you've aligned yourself against God. You know, the Bible talks a lot about, like, be in the world but not of the world, right? Like, be in the world but not of the world. Be, live in the world but don't be friends with the world. That a friend of the world is not a friend of God's. And I think sometimes we, get miss, we miss out on this idea of friendship. Because for our culture, you just got to go on Facebook just to see how many friends you have, right? Like, I got like 1,355 friends. This is really good. It's been a good year. Like, we view friendship as this casual acquaintance thing. But in James' day, friendship was something so different. You know, have you ever thought about how friendship has changed since the Industrial Revolution? Like, think about what friendship was like before people went to work in a factory. Like, you did the same thing your dad did and that your grandpa did and your grandpa's grandpa did. You lived in the same town that your family lived in for generations, your, friend, your best friend was probably your dad's best friend's kid, right? Like that was the way friendship worked. And friendship was intimate and it was deep and you knew everything about each other. Like there was a deepness to friendship that I think we miss today. But think about friendship today. What, what is friendship like? 
Friendship is very casual, right? We think of friends as somebody we know. Hey, have you met my buddy Pete? Oh, man, it's my really good friend Pete. Well, where's Pete from? Hey, Pete, where are you from, man? I'm not really sure. Like, we treat friendship almost as this, like, stalkerish thing on, on social media, right? Like, you see somebody goes on vacation to Disney World, and you love every one of their pictures, and you see them at the store, and you're like, hey, I loved your kid with Mickey Mouse. That was awesome. And they're like, whoa, man, that's kind of weird, right? Like, like, we treat friendship as something that is, is, is so differently than what James would have thought of friendship as. Friendship is, is intimate, and it's a deep relationship. Friendship, you are friends with your people. And what James is saying is if your people are the world, if your people are the people that are hostile to God, and if your people are anti-God, then you've put yourself in hostility and in a relationship with friends who aren't friends of God's. Does that make sense? And so he's saying you've got to pay attention to who you're being friends with here. And so ask yourself, the things you want in life, the things that are most important to you, who gives those things? Does God give those things? Or is that something that friends of the world give? Because James wants us to rest in that tension because it tells us a lot about ourselves and what's going on inside of our hearts. But here's the good news. You're like, that's kind of bad news, right? But here's the good news. God doesn't allow you to be a bad friend for long. Because if you're being a bad friend, God will go across the railroad tracks to the sketchy house in the sketchy part of town, and he will bring you out so he can bring you back. Notice what James says in verse 5. He says this, that talking about God's jealousy and God's grace. He says this, he says, Or do you suppose that it's no purpose that the scripture says that God yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us? Verse 6, but he gives more grace. If you've got your Bible with you, I'd highlight that, star that, circle that. He gives more grace. James is saying that God is jealous for you, and because of that, he will continually come and give you more grace and rescue you from falling away and falling out of line. When you hear that word jealous, though, it's kind of an interesting word, isn't it? Like, what do you think of when you hear that God is jealous for you? Have you ever thought about that? Like, God's jealousy? I don't know if you've ever heard the story of Oprah, Oprah Winfrey and Brad Pitt. They both say that the reason they drifted from their faith was because of the jealousy of God. That they thought, if there was a God who was jealous of me because of what I have, then why would I worship that God? But they got it all wrong. God's jealousy is not the same as ours. I mean, when you're jealous about something, you're jealous because of something that someone else has. I'm jealous of you because of something you have that I don't want. But that's not how God's jealousy works. God's jealousy is different. God is jealous not because of what you have. God isn't a jealous boyfriend who's mad. God is jealous about you. God is jealous for you. God is not pouting. God is instead wants you to have that fullness and richness in life. See, what God's jealousy tells us is that God knows that your only hope of happiness and joy are found in him. And so he is jealous for us to experience this deepest joy possible. And so when we fall into selfishness and self-centeredness and, and prayerlessness and, and covetousness and all these things, then we're missing out on the blessings God has for us. Notice what John Blanchard has to say. This is, I think this is powerful. He says this. He says, God was jealous for your salvation as he brought the gospel to you in one way or, and another. 
through one person and another, through one means and another, until finally he broke through in the power of the Holy Spirit and brought you to a living faith. What is more is he is jealous for you now, jealous for your spiritual welfare, jealous for you in every temptation and trial, jealous lest you should be robbed by covetousness and compromise and worldliness and prayerlessness or or disobedience in any shape or form. Notice this. He is jealous that you should have the fullness of blessing, those riches of grace that he longs to bestow upon every one of you, his people. So what does God's jealousy mean? God's jealousy means that he sees that we are being robbed by selfishness and sin. And he comes down the mountain to us. He comes over to the house to rescue us and to pull us out because he gives us more grace. He always gives us more grace. Look back at verse six. But he gives more grace. God isn't like the jealous girlfriend who keys your car in the Carrie Underwood Underwood song, right? God gives more grace because he gives us exactly what we need every single time. Just let that sink in for a second. That no matter what you're going through, no matter what you've fallen into, no matter how strong that sin or that desire, that temptation is in your life, God gives more grace. God gives you more grace to overcome that. And inside of you, he is at work. So here's what that means. No matter what mistake you made this week, God's grace abounds. Amen? No matter what temptation you've fallen into this week, God's grace abounds. Amen? No matter what temptation faces you this coming week, God's grace is more and more and more. God will always give you more than you need. And that is really good news, church. And God gives us this grace every single time. So when you look around at your life, what do you see? When you ask yourself, what is it I truly want in my life? What is that thing that I just have to have? What is that thing that I will do anything for? What's the answer? Is it something that God gives or is it something that the world gives? When you look at your relationships, when you look at your prayers, and when you look at the, the way you spend your time and your money and your energy, what does it tell you? What's going on in here? So you might look at this and say, James, you're getting my attention because my relationships right now aren't very good. And I'm in a lot of fights. And I I'm really have a lot of contempt for my coworkers or my friends who have more than I have. Or James, I, I, right now my prayer life is a mess. I, I can't even pray more than 30 seconds. Or I don't even want to pray at all. What James is trying to do is trying to get you to lean in and say, listen to God speak to you. He's got more for you. But you've got to follow his way. So what is that way? What's the remedy to the misalignment? How do we get the car in the shop? Well, thankfully, James tells us in verse 7. Look with me. He says this. He says in verse 7, Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. James, James doesn't mess around. He just gets right after it. He calls you beloved one, one verse, and the next verse he's calling you a sinner, right? But he's speaking to you because he loves you. And here's what he says. If you want to get a remedy for your misaligned heart, then you have to submit to God. There's a reality in life. I think we all know. The reality in life is this, that we don't want anybody telling us what to do. My daughter, Chloe, she turns four today, right? She, you know, they say terrible twos, 
Then there's the terrorist threes. We're entering into the communist fours. Like, it's a <laughs> real deal. And she didn't like anybody telling her what to do. And you know what? I don't, know, I don't either. And you don't either. None of us like somebody else telling us what to do. But you know what changes our heart? When we see that somebody else is right, when we see that somebody else's way is better, then it starts to make sense. And this is what James wants us to see. The reality is James wants us to see that we want things our way and we think we know what's best, but the reality is you are terrible kings. You want to be a king of your own kingdom? You are a terrible king. You don't know what you want and you're going to mess it up if you try to get it. But you know who does know what we need? God. Jesus did. And so because of that, God is saying, look, you need to step off the throne of your life and let the appropriate person sit in the first chair. And that's Jesus. Every single time. So submission, this idea of submitting to God, it just realizes that God knows best, that he knows what is better. And it's, what God is saying is, is that the difference, the key, the peace that we're missing to live the life of fullness and richness and deepness that God gives us is stepping back allowing God to step forward. So how do we do that? What does that look like? James tells us three ways, and we'll move through this pretty quick. Notice what he says first. He says first, we need to go to war with our temptations. If you want to find the remedy to the misalignment of your heart, there's three steps that James tells us, and the first one is this. We have to go to war with our temptations. We have to realize that there's a fight coming. Look what James says. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Resist the devil, verse 7, and he will flee from you. This is wartime language. James is saying there's a fight coming, and you got to be ready. you got to be ready to stand firm, and you got to be ready to stand against. Because like Paul says, we don't wrestle with flesh and blood, but powers of darkness. But there's a spiritual battle way bigger than anything we see that's going on. So we've got to be ready to resist the evil one. But here's the good news. There's a spiritual battle going on but God gives you what you need to beat it. Notice what Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 10, 13. I love this verse. This is so good. Notice what he says. He says that no temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. That God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. You know, you, you guys have heard the phrase, God will never give you more than you can handle. It's not true. He will. The world, the world will, and God will allow it, but God will never give you more than you can handle without him. And so by the grace of God, with God's strength, he will make a way of escape. And so when temptation comes, when that self-centeredness comes, when the desire for something you don't have that leads you to covetousness, that leads you to contempt, God will always make a way for you to fight that temptation. So we've got to go to war with our temptations and look for the way out that God always gives us. But notice second. James says this, that we have to commit our lives to a pursuit of Jesus. That if we don't commit to this, then we're going to continually keep running into the curb and keep having misaligned hearts and keep drifting off the road. That we have to commit to a life that pursues Jesus. Look, look what he says in verse 8. He says, draw near to God. Yeah, you've got to resist and, and get ready to go to war with your temptations, but you've got to draw near to God. And when you do, God will draw near to you. So how do we draw near to God? Well, I think if, if we look at the whole of the Bible, there's three main pieces to this. The first one we, is through his word. 
that we draw near to God through his word. But, but it's more than just going through a Bible reading plan. It's more than just checking the box that I read my two chapters in the day. We don't read the, the word of God like we're reading a newspaper. We read the word of God like we're reading a love letter, like we're reading a biography, because that's the way that we draw near to God, that we get to know him more and more. So let me ask you, when you open God's word this week, when you go to open your Bibles, how are you reading it? Are you reading it just to get through it? And you're checking your phone every other verse? Or are you reading it to truly know who Jesus is? And so you can be changed and you can have your affection stirred up for who Jesus is because he loved you, he loved you so much he came for you. We draw near to God through his word. We also draw near to God through a community of the saints, through the church when we come together as one. That's why being together with other believers is so important because in that moment that you can get encouraged, that you can get challenged, that you can walk together and talk about the challenges of life, and it's in the church setting that we can point each other to Jesus. You want to draw closer to Jesus? It's not with your Bible under a tree somewhere in the forest. That's nice. That's not it. Alone. It's together with the community of the church, with your brothers and sisters in Christ. But also, it's through the, the men and the women that God has put in your life, those special people that God has put in your life that are further ahead than you are, that can walk with you and can talk with you and can show you how they have stumbled and how God's been gracious to them. Because again, gratitude and the gifts of God and the graciousness of God leads to gladness. And so we have to point our eyes and surround ourselves with the right people. So he says, draw near to God. Build your life on a pursuit of Jesus. But finally, don't miss this one. This one's important. He says this. Commit. Commit your life to pursuing Jesus. And then third, get serious about sin. Like this is what James is drawing us down to. This is the, the point of this entire chapter is that we need to get serious about sin. Notice what he says at the end of the next verse. He says, Clean, cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Notice that picture. Your hands, that's your actions, right? Your hearts, that's, your, that's your, um, the, what's going on internally, inside of you. It's the center of who you are. And so we need to cleanse our hands, right? We need to clean up the way we act. But we also need to purify our hearts, meaning we need to take captive the thoughts inside of our minds, the desires inside of our hearts. Because there's a reality. Nobody talks to you like you do. Nobody has an ongoing conversation with themselves like you do. And so what are you saying to yourself? What are the words you're saying to yourself? We need to captivate our thoughts in the arena of our minds, and we need to realize that the actions of our life lead to difficult and dangerous relationships. And so we need to clean our hands. We need to purify our hearts by getting real with sin. And that means that we're confessing our sin and we're repenting of our sin and we're moving near and experiencing the goodness and the grace and the mercy of God. I want to ask the band to kind of move back towards the stage. And as we kind of move to a, kind of wrapping up what James is telling us today, I'm reminded of the story in John chapter 7 where Jesus is near the temple and the Pharisees and the religious leaders, they, they bring this woman who's been caught in adultery to Jesus. And if you 
you've read this story, you know that the, the woman that's been caught in adultery is, she's brought to Jesus and she, she doesn't have any clothes on. She's crying. She's just kind of just a mess, right? Snot bubbles and everything and she's dirty and they throw her down in front of Jesus. And they say, Jesus, the law says that she should lose her life. And right there in this moment, she's confronted with the seriousness of her sin. And she's confronted with the reality that what she got caught doing could lead to her losing her life. But if you know the story, the most amazing thing happens next. Jesus looks at the, at the crowd and he says to them, yeah, you're, you're right. The law does say that. But let you who've never sinned cast the first stone. And then he bends down. I would love to know what he wrote. He bends down, he starts writing in the dirt. And one after another, we hear thud. From the youngest to the oldest, or from the oldest to the youngest, thud, thud, thud. He looks up and they're all gone. And here's this woman, she's, again, she's crying and messy. And, and he looks down at her and he says, hey, do, does no one condemn you anymore? And she looked back at the crowd. I can't imagine the look on her face. And she said, no, they don't. And he says, neither do I. Now go and sin no more. The reality is that in the darkest moments, we see the light of Jesus the brightest. And we have to get serious with our sin and to see what our sin is doing in our lives. It's causing our relationships to be messy. It's causing us to lose focus on who God is and what God is doing in our life. And when we get real with our sin, when we let the reality of our sin weigh on us, it, it hurts. But it's in that moment that we see the tender, loving care of Jesus who looks down at us and says, where are your, those that condemn you? They're gone. Well, I don't condemn you either. Go and sin no more. And so Fort Brian, I, I want us to, to take home today that when we draw near to God, he will draw near to us. And so where have we gotten out of alignment? Where have we drifted off the lane? Where in our lives have we let a desire for something outside of the things that God gives pull our hearts away from God, who he is and where he wants to take us? What do you see it in your relationships? Where do you see it in your prayer life? What are you pursuing that captures your heart? Because James says that when we humble ourselves before God, that God will exalt us. And the only way for us to experience the richness and the fullness and the deepness of what it means to follow Jesus is to humbly bend our knee and say, Jesus, take your rightful seat as king of my heart because I'm a terrible king. And trust that he knows what is truly best for us.